Good evening, everyone, and everyone watching online. Two quick kind of uh, housekeeping items. Jordan, I've already messed with this thing so many times <laughs> since he put it on, uh, trying to adjust it. So if, if it's off at any point, I give you permission to rush the stage and fix it so that the people watching online don't get a subpar experience. This is also my first time. I'm, I'm, I'm always like, I always watch PV up here on Wednesday nights, and I'm like, man, sitting down looks so cool and relaxed, and one of these days I'm going to try it. So I told Jordan, I'm going to try sitting down today while, while I teach. That might, that, <laughs> that'll either really throw me off, or it'll um, kind of relax me a little bit. But it should keep me in one place anyway, so you don't have to like follow me around. We are in Mark chapter 5. Uh, and so, in Mark, well, at the end of Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus, uh, before calming the storm, he had told his disciples, hey, let's cross the Sea of Galilee and go over to the other side. Uh, and so they are going to go to what, the, what chapter 5 calls the country of the Gadarenes, or Gadara. Um, the country of the Gadarenes, or Gadara, this was part of a, um, of, of, a, of, of a group of cities called the Decapolis, and these cities were um, what, uh, what theologians and historians call um, Hellenistic-influenced cities. Now, when you hear that word Hellenistic, sometimes you just hear the first part of it and you think that they're hellish <laughs> or that they're evil. Uh, that's not what it means. Uh, Hellenistic just means that they are heavily influenced by Greek culture. And so these 10 cities of the Decapolis, they were within the area of Judea, and so there are still Jews living there, but they are, um, they, they are predominantly lived in by, by, by Greeks or by uh, Jews who have been heavily influenced by Greek culture. So they're not devoutly following the, the, the tenets of Judaism. Um, they're, they're, they're more given over to the Greek or Gentile ways of, of, of living, ways of worshiping, all those things. So Jesus says in chapter 4, hey, let's go over there. Um, it's important that we remember that Jesus does, does not come to this region by accident. It's not like he was just kind of passing through and he's like, hey, here's, this is a nice stop. Let's stop here. Um, he, he intends to come here um, for a very specific purpose. We know that because once that purpose is accomplished, he turns and leaves right away. Uh, and, and, and the fact of that kind of, kind of makes the whole calming of the storm situation all the more interesting. There are some uh, commentators and theologians who, who would go as far as to say that the storm itself is a precursor to spiritual warfare, that it is in fact spiritual warfare, that the forces of darkness were trying to keep Jesus from this particular mission field. Um, I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit to decide. I think it's fascinating anyway. Um, but, uh, but uh, there are several things in this passage that we can get distracted by, that we can get kind of um, off the trail with. Uh, so I am going to try and keep us uh, focused. And so um, I do want to make the comparison. And that, that, the, the, in, in my opinion, the focus of this story is, is another example of Jesus leaving his agents everywhere he goes. It reminds me of when, when he came to Galilee, from Judea to Galilee, and he tells his disciples, we have to go through Samaria. And common or conventional wisdom at that time for a Jew was, no, 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 you don't go through Samaria. Uh, those are like the dregs of society. We avoid Samaria at all costs. We go all the way around out of our way uh, to avoid Samaria. And Jesus says, no, no, we, we have to go through Samaria. Why? because I have an agent in the waiting, because there's a woman at the well that I need to encounter, and she needs to encounter me. And when they leave that area, he leaves someone behind to carry on the work. And so a very similar thing is happening here, I believe. Uh, he's going to a region that is not, um, it's, it's not a, the kind of place you would find a self-respecting rabbi. It's not the kind of place you would find a devout Jew. In fact, we're going to see that they're going to be surrounded by tombs and pigs, <laughs> Uh, very unclean things in the mind of, of a first century Jew. Um, so, um, so yeah, Jesus is doing this intentionally. He's here on, on purpose. Uh, so let's begin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. 
and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. I'm going to stop there just for a little bit. Uh, this is the second account that Mark records of Jesus encountering um, a person possessed uh, by, an, by an evil spirit. Um, and, and many people, many um, theologians and scholars and commentators and the like, when we read these, these accounts, these encounters of Jesus and the forces of darkness in a very, very uh, uh, vivid way, um, we are tempted to, to, to study them and apply them and, and, and string together a sort of theology of demonology. Um, and we begin to, to look at, well, what techniques does Jesus use here? What are the keys to success? What are the things he does? And how can we emulate those and replicate those um, so that we're ready uh, when, when and if we ever encounter this kind of spiritual opposition um, and, and what these, these efforts inevitably boil down to is we, we can look at and study the encounters between Jesus and, and, and demons and, tr- and, and, and think that the point of that is to create a how-to guide on like, how, to do, how, to, how to engage in spiritual warfare with, with evil spirits. And so, you know, you have people who are like, we'll sell books. There's all kinds of books about this. You know, here's how to cast out demons and things like that. Um, you know, we're each responsible before the Holy Spirit to receive from him, to hear from him when we read and study scripture. Um, each of us is individually responsible to, to listen to how, to how he would have us apply it. Um, but it is my opinion that, that those kinds of efforts, um, not only do they miss the point, I think, of this story, but they also veer dangerously close to an unhealthy fascination with the demonic. And uh, I've encountered several people in my years of ministry, in particular young people, because there's something about that demographic that just is kind of given over to that. There's, there's a real fascination with it. And, and, and you catch people's imaginations and, and, and their attention real quick when you talk about um, the occult and, and demons and things like that. Um, and... Uh, and it can develop into a very unhealthy fascination with it. And I don't think that that's what we're meant to, as believers, that's what we're meant to dive into. Um, we don't have to get to know our enemy all that well. We just have to get to know our Savior all the better. Okay? And so if I could summarize that whole tension in that statement, it would be just know Jesus better. Okay? And uh, um, it reminds me of... I would say this is one of my favorite stories in Acts, but that's kind of weird. Um, it's, it's one of the stories I find the most fascinating in, in the book of Acts when, when these, these men try to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus and Paul, and, and they're, they're part of a, a group called the Sons of, of Siva. Um, and the book of Acts says that seven of them, seven of them account, encountered a, a demon-possessed man, and they said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And the demon-possessed man looks at them and says, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you are. And the scripture says he pounces on them, and they run away, you know, bleeding and naked. <laughs> so we don't want to be them. <laughs> That's the example of what not to do. Um, we, we, we need to pour more into Jesus and let him handle that, I think. Um, so that being said... The casting out of demons was and continues to be an important theological function of Christ's ministry. Although we don't want to veer to the extreme and start, you know, going overboard with how we study them, trying to figure out their names, trying to figure out their ranks, trying to figure out where they, all this nonsense, um, that would be an extreme. Uh, the the, the, the uh, spiritual warfare, nevertheless, still played and continues to play an important theological function in the ministry of Jesus, um, along with his other displays of power and authority and of healing. Um, Jesus did not think of his exorcisms or of his healings, for that matter, as simply like, like a service that he rendered to whoever was there. It's not like he was like, come get your exorcisms, you know, 
half price or whatever, you know. Um, th there was intention behind it. There was purpose behind it. And we don't have to extrapolate that um, from our own understanding. Jesus says as much himself that he considers uh, the casting out of demons as a sign that God's kingdom has indeed come near and is being expressed in his ministry. He says this in Matthew 12, 28. Uh, and this is when um, we have a similar parallel account in the book of Mark that we looked at. Uh, but in Matthew 12, I'm going to read from this. This is when the, uh, the Pharisees, they're accusing him of, of casting out demons by the power of Satan. It says, they say he casts out Beelzebub by the power of Beelzebub. And in Matthew 12, um, let me actually go back to verse 25. I'm going to start in verse 25 of chapter 12. This might not be on the screen. but um, And again, this is parallel to what we've already read in Mark. So it's going to sound familiar. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So first of all, he's saying, look, if your own exorcists are also casting out demons, then you got to ask yourself, well, how are they doing it? Okay, um, but, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus, by, in his own words, he's saying the casting out of demons um, means that the kingdom of God is here and now. It has come upon you. Um, the forcing out of evil, the expelling of that which is anti Jesus is the only uh, reasonable or logical, I wouldn't say conclusion. It is, the, it is the effect of the penetrating presence of God's kingdom. Because where God's kingdom is, God reigns. And evil cannot have authority and dominion where God reigns, where God's authority is present. And so evil and demonic forces cannot have, cannot, can no longer hold authority over kingdom citizens. And so where Jesus' kingdom penetrates, evil must be driven out. Not as a task, not as, as a to-do list, but as a natural consequence of the rule and reign of Jesus, um, demonic power is undone. And so another way of putting it um, is that where Jesus is allowed to have authority, um, evil's power is broken. The power of evil is broken. And um, Jesus has left us, his church. Now in his physical absence, we, he has left us with the responsibility and the commission to carry forth the continual spreading of his kingdom. So wherever we bring the kingdom now, um, if we're doing it in the spirit of God the way Jesus was, um, then the power of evil is broken. And Jesus told his disciples, he tells us, um, you will do greater things than what I've done um, after I leave because the spirit will come upon you. And so he's left us with that same mission. Um, so again, we don't want to get too carried away with, uh, with demonology, with studying exorcisms and all those things. Hollywood does a perfectly fine job with that for us, right? That's sarcasm. Um, uh, but we do want to take our commission seriously that uh, as, as, as kingdom bearers, as kingdom carriers, um, we, we do battle with the forces of darkness daily. Um, and, uh, and again, the key to that isn't, isn't a how-to book, isn't a step-by-step -step guide. It's uh, following the footsteps of our Savior. So having established that caution, there are a few things that I think we can learn about spiritual warfare from these first five verses, and then we will move on. Um, so there, there are just a few things, again, um, that I think, I think we do well to bear in mind when it comes to spiritual warfare, because spiritual warfare does not always look like this. In fact, in the West, in, 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 in the U.S., and in, um, I hate to use the word civilized, that sounds kind of demeaning, um, but in, in areas where, where, you know, where we've advanced in technology and science and where we're, just, we're, we're too sophisticated to believe in demons, I guess. That's also sarcasm, by the way. Um, we don't see a whole lot of this, right? We, we're, we're, we don't walk the streets and, and, and see very obvious signs of demonic possession the way it's described here. And so I believe, I believe that the schemes and the tactics of the enemy are far more subtle um, and, 
and we need to be aware of them. But the, some of the telltale signs are still there of spiritual warfare. So first of all, we read that this possessed man, that he lived among the tombs, that he was cast out, that he was no longer considered um, worthy of, of dwelling among and living among, you know, a sophisticated society that um, he had no place to call his own. He was living surrounded by death. And that's an interesting juxta- juxtaposition for any life. You, you can't call that life. If the place where you live, you are surrounded by death. And there's something about, there's something about the state of the outcast. There's something about the state of the person who, whose identity, whose humanity has been ignored, has been erased, has been minimized, um, that makes them especially susceptible and vulnerable to spiritual attack. There's something about those who have been cast out um, that seems to provide an open door for the enemy to come in and do his work. And I believe it starts with isolation. Maybe it doesn't start with isolation, but I think isolation is a major part of it. That for one reason or another, when we find ourselves in a place of isolation, we are removing ourselves from one of the, the, the surest guardrails that God has given us in the Christian faith, um, the, the, the support of community, the support, especially as believers, of the community of faith. Um, isolation separates us from, um, from the the protections and the compassions and the fellowships um, that God has placed for us. And so this man finds himself isolated. He's isolated and he is surrounded by death. Um, The effects of isolation don't always look the same. Demonic activity, um, oppression, those things don't always look look the same. Um, I would say when the forces of darkness gain mastery over you, it doesn't always look the same. Because we might not well call some of the things we say demonic possession, uh, but things like, uh, like addiction, like uh, depression, self-destructive habits, um, self-harm, things like that. These aren't always, so don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that these are always signs that, that someone is being demonically possessed. Um, they're almost, always a sign of spiritual warfare, and very often a sign of at least demonic oppression, if not possession. So again, I think the enemy's tactics have become more subtle. He's not going to, in our culture, usually you know, uh, cause a person to lose control over their body, to, to grant them supernatural strength, to have them um, you know, performing supernatural acts. We, we, we read in other accounts in Scripture of, of people possessed by demons doing, doing supernatural things. Um, I, I don't think, I, I, I think the enemy's attacks have become more subtle. He doesn't, he doesn't oppress that way. He uses things like anxiety. He uses things like depression. He uses things like isolation to drive us further and further away from the kingdom. So again, uh, this man, he is living among the tombs. He's been abandoned um, evidently, maybe they tried to help him because it says that they had tried to, to chain him and subdue him, um, but they've given up. He's a person who, who society has given up on and that has made his spiritual state all the worse. Um, so the second thing we see is, like I said, no one could restrain him. Uh, it says that no one had the strength to subdue him. And this is where we can get in trouble when when and if we ever think of, of anything in Scripture as like, like a step-by-step guide to, to, to success. A lot of historians from this time period, uh, like guys like, like Josephus um, and others like him, um, have recorded several examples of popular exorcists, exorcists in, in that time. Um, it, was, it was a common practice. People would make a business out of it. Like literally, they would go around casting out demons. Um, and, uh, and they were always said to use some kind of tool, some kind of peripheral, some kind of, of, uh, of, of item um, to kind of channel their, their exorcist powers. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Um, uh, but uh, there, there, were, there, there are stories and legends, and, and there are probably more legends than there are actual historical accounts, of popular exorcists who would use um, incense, 
uh, jewelry. One, one individual was said to use like, like a, 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 a ring and water, um, wood chips and ashes, uh, even medicines. All kinds of things were used in these exorcism rites. Um, and, and what would happen is if, if an exorcist was famous enough, was popular enough, if he had gained enough of, uh, of, of a reputation to his name, very often he could perform the rites, he could say the right things, he could go through the whole, the whole thing, the whole you know, song and dance, and the person would be declared clean and healed without any other evidence of restoration. Just the fact that he went through the motions and everyone would say, okay, he's done it. So the person's better now, and that would be the end of it, regardless of whether or not there was any actual evidence to it. That sounds eerily familiar <laughs> uh, to a lot of our religion and tradition, right? Um, we can go through all the right steps, we can say all the right things, and we can say, okay, good, I'm, I'm good, and I'm, I'm pure, I'm, I'm, I'm cleaned, I'm cured, whatever it is, um, without any actual out, outward evidence to support that. Um, and so it's interesting, and it's relevant, and it's important that Jesus uses none of that. That in any instance where he is, he is casting out evil spirits, he's not using a tool, he's not using a ring, he's not using incense, he's not using an incantation, uh, he's not speaking a different language, they would do that a lot too. He just says, leave, <laughs> and the demons leave. And, um, and I think that's why when he did it, the Bible says over and over again that the people around him were in shock. They had seen exorcisms before. They had seen demonically possessed people before. This was the first time someone came and under his own authority, he doesn't invoke the name of Moses. He doesn't invoke the name of Abraham or even God himself. Under his own authority, with no help from anything else, he's casting out demons and, and they can see it there is clear evidence that the demon has left, you know? Um, and so uh, we're gonna read in a little bit that that actually filled them with more fear. It's like, this guy is worse than a demon, maybe. We don't know. Um, so, uh, so scripture is clear uh, that demonic power is real, that Satan has power, he has strength. Um, and overcoming him is not a step-by-step -step process. Scripture is also clear that Satan's authority and his power doesn't begin to compare with that of Christ. And it's always limited by Jesus' authority and by his power. Um, and very often, again, in, in my, my ministry with students and with young people, when we talk about things like this, there, there's an element of fear, right? There's, there's always this, this element of fear when we're talking about, uh, about demons and that kind of thing. Um, and so if the thought of demonic activity still, fear, still fills anyone with fear, then again, I would, I would encourage you that, you know, the answer isn't to study it more. Uh, the answer is to, uh, to get to know your Savior more. Um, because as we're going to see, um, their power ends where Jesus wants it to end. And they have no authority where the king reigns. Um, so... Uh, the third thing I want us to see about spiritual warfare that we see in this man is that he's always, the, 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 the Bible says, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. This isn't the first time or the last time that when scripture de describes, not just the Bible, by the way, but a lot of ancient texts, when they describe demonically possessed individuals, there's, there, there's oftentimes this association with self-harm and violence. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it about the state of a possessed person that we often read that they begin to harm themselves? And scripture doesn't speak to this explicitly, so I'm going to give you my opinion. Um, I'm going to make that very clear. This is, this is Jonathan's opinion. I think it's supported by scripture, but um, I believe that Satan and the forces of darkness hate and despise the image of God. And they have no power, no real power, to, um, to truly bring down the image of God. And so when they have any opportunity to tear down the image of God as it's expressed in his creation, they take it. I believe they, they hate and despise us as image bearers of God. 
I believe that they're filled with a, um, not just a jealousy, uh, but this, 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 this vile hatred because lesser creatures like us are blessed with the Imago Dei, are blessed with being image bearers and not they. And so when they have the opportunity, they desire to mar that image, to break down that image, to destroy that image. And so that's why I think oftentimes when we read about demonic possession, there is this element of of violence and self-violence and, and destruction associated with it. They, they're here to, to steal, kill, and destroy. They want nothing more than to tear down the glory of God and the image of God as it's expressed in, in his creation. Um, if you remember, in the Old Testament, uh, self-mutilation was often a form of worship of pagan gods, right? Um, I always think about the story of Elijah, and when he's, when he's having this competition with the prophets of 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 Baal, and, and, and they're crying out to Baal, saying, come and hear us. And what do they do? They begin to cut themselves. They begin to slice themselves because that was part of their, their worship rites. If, God, if, 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 if our God's not hearing us, if he's not listening to us, then we need to get his attention. The way I do that is to mutilate our bodies in various ways. And um, in the Old Testament and in, in the Old Testament law, you know, the, the Israelites were forbidden from, from cutting themselves or for, from tattooing themselves because in that time and in that culture, again, those were forms of self-mutilation that were, that were acts of worship to pagan gods. And God wants nothing to do with that. God wants nothing to do with the marring and the destruction of his own image as it, uh, as it is expressed in his creation. Um, and so um, whatever their reasoning, and again, that's, that's what I believe, but uh, whatever their reasoning, demonic possession in Scripture is often followed with some form of self-harm for the possessed, okay? Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it kind of brings into light, the, the, there's, there's been this whole epidemic, and I haven't heard as much about it in recent years, but I remember 10 or 15 years ago, there was a real rise in, um, in young people self-harming, and, and, and I know it's still a thing. Um, I, I hear about it less. I'm, I'm not optimistic enough to believe that's because it's happening less. I think probably people are getting better at hiding it. Um, but there, there was a real rise in reports of adolescent self-harm. And there is a benefit. There, there, there is a place for, for, for psychology and for, um, uh, for coming in with, with okay, here, here are the, um, the emotional and the mental um, you know, struggles that, 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 that lead to that. And I, I do think there is some benefit to those things. But I also think sometimes we can, we can discount too quickly the spiritual. And sometimes we can go straight to the psychological and the clinical, which is good, uh, but we do that at the expense of also the spiritual. And I do believe firmly that any time that that is happening, it is, again, some form of spiritual warfare is happening. Um, we're, not, we're not designed to destroy ourselves. I mean, that's, that's an act of rebellion. That's an act of, of the enemy coming in and taking over. So, all right, moving on in verse six. So we, we, you know, we, we, we were described, or we, we have described for us uh, this demon-possessed man. It says in verse six, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him, and, which is a funny thing to say. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, that's a lot of pigs. Uh, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is a very interesting conversation. Uh, it's a very chilling conversation between Jesus and this evil spirit. And, and there are some similarities to, to the encounter Jesus has in, in, in Mark chapter 1. There's one similarity in, in particular that I want to, to look at. In Mark chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, 
Uh, it says, now there was, a man with, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of, Naz- Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How similar is that to what this demon says in chapter 5 when he says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And um, it's not like Jesus goes, it's not like he's like ghost hunting. He's not like a ghost buster out there looking for it. Like, like the demons come to him. It's like they see him. And they said this, this, this guy saw him from afar and came running to him and, um, and falls on his knees. And he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That phrase, what have you to do with me, is a proclamation of hostility. Um, it's reminiscent of many times in the Old Testament when opposing forces would come and, and, um, and they would say that. What, what have you to do with me? In other words, what peace is there between us? What, what possible friendship or fellowship could we have? What, what, what association do we have? Well, it's enmity. We are enemies. And it's the same type of phrase that these demons are, are using. They, they are proclaiming hostility towards Jesus. In, in essence, they're drawing a line in the sand and they're saying, this, this is not your, why, why are you here, Jesus? This is, this is, this is where, where I reign. Uh, there's no room for you here. Uh, if you like old, old time Westerns, um, they're essentially saying, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and again, it's this interesting tension because the Bible says the demon came, and the Bible calls it worship. He falls on his knees, and it's, it's, it's powerful, guys. In the presence of Jesus, evil has to kneel, not by its own will. We know from what the demon says that his will is the very opposite of what, the, of what he's having to do. But just the presence of Jesus brings this, uh, this demon to his knees in worship, and he says, uh, you know, you, you need to leave, Jesus. This isn't, you know, what, what have you to do with me? Um, there are those uh, who would point out that, um, um, that one of the superstitions of that time, and this has kind of persisted to today, uh, if, and I wouldn't recommend this, but if you study the occult or whatever, um, there's a superstitious thought that one way of gaining control or authority over Another entity or spiritual force is to call it by name. Um, and that superstition was very prevalent during this time. That if you call something by name, that, that shows that you have authority over that force. Now, there's some basis to that because we know that multiple times in Scripture, God and Jesus, they will change a person's name to denote a change in their and their trajectory of life. And now God is saying, Abram, now you're Abraham because now you're mine. Jacob, now you're Israel because now you're mine. And even with, with Simon and Peter, right? Or Simon Peter. Um, so there's, there's something to that. But, um, but when it comes to spiritual warfare, um, it's probably more, more superstition. But it's interesting, um, nevertheless, because this demon, and, and not just this one, but the other ones, when they encounter Jesus, they call him out by name. It's not just by name, but also by title, because it says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, when we hear that, we think, well, that, that's ridiculous. Why would a spiritual, why, why, why would an evil spirit, knowing who Jesus is, um, knowing who his father is, uh, try to exert authority over him? How could that be? What makes it more interesting, though, is what the demon says next, because the New King James doesn't quite translate this, I think, as, uh, as accurately as it should. In the New King James, it sounds like what the demon says next is, is to beg Jesus for mercy, is to beg Jesus for leniency, because it says, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And so that word implore sounds like he's saying, please, please don't torment me, right? The Greek word is horkizo, um, and the word itself is better translated, and, and other translations do this, um, as the word adjure. Um, and the word adjure, so he's saying, I adjure you by God that you do not torment me. The word adjure means to attempt to bind someone with an oath forced upon them. It means 
to try to force someone to promise something. It's the same word Paul uses later in one of his letters when he says, I adjure you to read this letter before all the churches. I want you to, to promise that you're going to read this letter. So it's an attempt to try to force an oath on to another party. It's kind of ridiculous to think that a demon would say to, to whom he knows, he said it with his own words, you're the son of the most high God. I adjure you, I horkizo you, um, that you do not torment me. The gall, the nerve, you know. Um, and so um, that, that makes that whole, the whole tension, the whole interaction uh, interesting and kind of chilling. The irony, of course, is that what we've already read is that the spirit is attempting, is attempting this from a subservient position. Like he's already kneeling before Jesus. Um, and then from a kneeling position, he's saying, you, you promise me that you're going to leave me alone. Um, his attempt at resistance is short-lived. It's almost as if Jesus is like, okay, I'll play your game. We're going to play that game. We're going to play that game. Um, because Jesus says, um, what is your name? Again, an, an interesting and strange response. Why wouldn't Jesus just say, stop talking, leave? <laughs> you know? um, does Jesus ask him his name because he doesn't know his name? Um, why, why hasn't the father already revealed that to him? Does he ask him his name because it matters? Um, it could be that Jesus knows the superstition of the people around him. Um, and by getting the demon to confess his own name, thereby disarming himself, uh, Jesus is all the more showing his authority. If that superstition were true, no spiritual force would ever give up their own name on command, right? Because that means I'm giving up my authority. So by Jesus saying, you tell me your name, then a demon has to obey. He has to obey. He can't, he can't say, no, I'm not going to tell you. Um, and in that act, in, in, in having to acquiesce to that request, it is too much for the demon to handle. And then he does actually begin to beg. Because after telling him, um, my name is Legion, for we are many. And much has been made about how many that actually means. Again, I think it's beside the point. I don't think we have to attach a literal number to that. We, th more than one's enough. One's enough, all right? The fact that there's more than one, that's all we need to know. Um, but it says after that, in verse 10, also now he begged, he begged him earnestly he would not send them out of the country. Now that's the right translation. So um, after, forcing, after being forced to disarm himself, now he's begging, uh, please don't send me out. Uh, please um, let me go to these pigs. Let, you know, you know, he's, he's begging Jesus for mercy. It's an interesting thing. Throughout the whole ordeal, the whole interaction, we never get the impression from Jesus at any point that he's worried, that he's not in control. He seems calm and collected. This demon is, is, is resisting and, and, and struggling and begging and kneeling and, and yelling, and Jesus is just calm and collected. And at no point do we ever get the impression that, that he didn't see this coming. This was not all part of the plan to begin with. Um, he just does what he, what he came there to do. One more quick takeaway from the struggle, and then we will move on. Uh, it's not wise to make a hermeneutical habit of drawing comparisons between us and demons, I think. Um, but it is always worth remembering, and we repeat this passage a lot, and I think rightfully so, because the line between belief and faith is so fine, and it's so much easier to say, I believe something to be true, than it is to say, I put my faith in something being true, Okay. Um, that this comparison is, is always worthwhile. Uh, what James writes in James 2.19, when he says, you know, you believe in, in God, good. So do the demons, and they tremble, right? So we're not making that comparison. James does it <laughs> for us. It's a biblical thing to do. Um, how does our belief compare to the belief of demons? Um, this demon confessed with his mouth who Jesus was. He believed, I don't know if demons have brains, I don't know. believed in whatever mind he has that Jesus is who he said he was. He was kneeling before him in worship and, and resisted him fervently, okay? Um, and so we need to ask ourselves sometimes, uh, what do we say, what do we mean when we say, I believe? And how does that belief 
compare to this. Um, the presence, the mere presence of Jesus was enough to bring this, this demon to his knees, but it was not enough for him to surrender, at least not right away. Very often, um, we will encounter people who will acknowledge Jesus with their lips, acknowledge Jesus even with their minds. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he came and died for my sins. I believe that. And yet earnestly and fervently resist him in their hearts. And so we can agree with the evil spirit's words that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the, the Most High God, and we can still demand authority over our own lives. We can still demand a separation. We can still draw that line in the sand and say, yes, I believe you are a son of the Most High God, but what have you to do with me, Jesus um, of Nazareth? And so um, we will encounter people like that daily, right? And so again, um, we're meant to ask ourselves those questions. If we're not careful, we can be no better, in a sense, than unclean spirits having a form of godliness, a form of faith, a form of belief, but denying its power and constantly trying to bring the will of Christ under our authority rather than submitting to his authority ourselves. Uh, let's finish up this story. So in verse 14, so those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who, who had been demon-possessed and, and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So all the people come. They, they, you know, everyone knows about this guy. He's the guy that's screaming on the mountains, that lives in the tombs, who's always throwing himself up against things, bruising himself. The, 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 the whole town knows who this guy is. When they hear, hey, he's been set free, they all come out. They see with their own eyes see with their own eyes a tangible, visible miracle and change. And it says, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Oh, don't forget the pigs. Don't forget Jesus. We lost 2,000 pigs to this guy. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. What, what does it take, you know? Um, it's easy for us to kind of look at, to read that and be like, what's wrong with you? Um, why? why, why? They're not just asking him. They're, they're, they're pleading with him, like, please leave. Please, we don't want your kind here. I mean, um, we can't have all this healing going on. I mean, you know, um, what, what is going on? Well, let me keep reading. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. I love that. He wants to stay with Jesus. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So this is where, this is what I believe the purpose of this of this retelling is. I think this is, this is where it's, it's bringing us. It's not about studying demons or about all that. It's about this interaction right here. Why would the community beg Jesus to leave after seeing and hearing about the healing of this man? They had clearly tried to help him themselves. It says that they had tried to subdue him and chain him and he, he wasn't having it. So they knew about him. They had tried to help him. They saw him restored and cleaned. And something in that formula leads them to beg Jesus to leave. And here's what I think it is. When you have an undeniable face-to-face -face encounter with God's holiness, it demands a response. It demands a response. You cannot experience the holiness of God and continue to feel comfortable with the way you've lived. Even people in scripture that we would call godly people, they have a vision of God's holiness, of his throne room. And immediately, over and over again, they fall to their knees begging for forgiveness. They say, I am unclean. I am a sinner. And these are like prophets and priests and people that we look up to in scripture. And when they encounter God's holiness, um, it demands a repentant response, even from them. And I believe the same is true in this story, and the same is true today. 
Holiness demands that we become uncomfortable with our complacency. Holiness demands that we become uncomfortable with our compromise. And holiness demands that we become uncomfortable with our sin. And they just heard this demon-possessed man cry out that this is the son of the most high God. They just heard him with his own mouth proclaim the holiness of Jesus. And then they saw that holiness in action. And now they're asking, what does this, something has to change. There has to be some response. And so many people, when faced with that moment, would rather push Jesus away, would rather say, I would rather not face that. Jesus, I would rather you leave me alone than for me to have to be made to be uncomfortable with how I'm I'm living. I don't want to be made uncomfortable with the fact that I'm maybe, maybe a Jewish person who's raising pigs, which was against their law. Um, I don't want to be made uncomfortable with the lifestyle that I've grown accustomed to when I confront, when you confront me with your holiness. And there are plenty of people who would rather Jesus not heal them, who would rather Jesus not restore them, who would rather Jesus not come in and mend them if it means that by so doing, they would have to respond to his holiness in some way. And so I believe that that's, it it, it could be, I could be wrong. It's possible that people just thought, this guy is scarier than a demon. Um, You know, um, more likely, I feel like uh, they had an inkling of who was standing before them and they would rather cling to their lives and change. Which, which makes what happens next all the more crucial and important because Jesus makes this habit in his earthly ministry, like, like I said at, at, at the beginning, of leaving his agents everywhere he goes. Because there are some places, and it, it sounds almost wrong to say this, but I hope you guys understand what I mean by this. And if you don't, I'll try to clarify. Uh, there are some places that Jesus could not go without having this reaction, that his agents could go. That makes sense? Um, the woman at the well, right? Um, this man, this demoniac possessed, the, 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 the leper that he healed. And over and over again, these people, when they're restored, they, they want to be with Jesus. They're like, I want to follow you. And so often Jesus tells them no. He says, no, no, you have a mission field now. I didn't heal you just to heal you, just to make your life comfortable. I healed you because now, now you're on my team, and now you have a mission, um, and now you are to go to places where, um, where I can't go, um, where, and carry that kingdom influence and presence with you. In his typical gentle manner, Jesus does not force his presence on those who are not ready to accept it. He could have been like, I'm staying here. I traveled all this way. I came through a storm uh, to get here. I'm not leaving till I'm done. Uh, He could have forced his way into their town and said, what's wrong with you? But Jesus is ever a gentleman. And they ask him to leave and he leaves. Um, And I believe that continues to be true about him today. But he leaves a planted seed to carry on the work. And so this is the crucial part. Um, You and I are those agents today. Jesus would have us take the testimony of how he's changed our lives to those people who are still unprepared to face him in person. And the world is filled. Our communities, our neighborhoods, our schools, our jobs, all these places, they're filled with people who are still unprepared to face Jesus face to face. Um, when they see a life that has been healed by Jesus, that is ruled by Jesus, that has experienced the love and the compassion of Jesus through the testimony of his church, then that is when the kingdom is advanced. Um, and that is when the forces of darkness continue to decline. And so I love how throughout the Gospels, we constantly see interspersed through all the miracles, through all the sermons and teachings, 
used to say, okay, you're going to go here. You can't come with me, but you're going to go here. You're going to go here. Um, and, uh, and so often, like I said, they would much prefer to stay with him, and who can blame them for that? But just as there's a mission field for them, uh, there's a mission field for us. Our king, um, I love this. Our king brings demons to their knees. He sets captives free, and he brings the outcasts back into the light of true living. Um, And it is our mission to do what Jesus says here when he says, go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have done great things in our lives. Even when we get so overwhelmed and distracted by the mundane, by the worldly, by by everything um, that causes us to so quickly and easily forget. Lord, you have done great things. You have shown great compassion. Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would be your agents. We would be agents of your kingdom that as much as we long to be with you in your presence in eternity, you've left us here for a reason. And so I pray that our hearts and our minds and our thoughts would ever be drawn to those who, um, who need to, to, to see, hear, and experience the testimony of what you've done in our lives. Um, I pray, Lord, that daily you would empower us for that mission. Uh, you would drive us. You would compel us forward. Um, with, with vision for your glory and with compassion for the lost um, to, um, to be your agents here. Lord, thank you again for, uh, for this time. Thank you again for, uh, for this, uh, this season uh, of the new year. Lord, I'm grateful for the, the testimony that, that Alex shared on, on Sunday, Lord, and how he shared about your faithfulness to him through, um, through heart-wrenching struggle. Father, I pray that you would use that testimony and ours as well to draw more and more into your arms, into your kingdom. We pray it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.